0: Welcome to the Jeremiah Patterson Show and thank you for joining me this Saturday. On August 7th, 1789, uh, President George Washington wrote a letter to Congress reminding them to create provisions for the U.S. military. Uh, President Washington told them he didn't need to argue for an issue on which the, quote, honor, safety and well-being for our country so evidently and essentially depend. But it may not be amiss to observe that I am particularly anxious and should receive early attention as circumstances will admit, end quote. So that's President George Washington writing that letter to Congress on August 7th, 1789. The secretary of war at the time uh, was Henry Knox. And he read that letter out loud to members of Congress. However, they did not immediately act. I mean, this is like your parent telling you to do something. You're like, okay, I got you. You don't do anything. You essentially like disregard those instructions. (laughs) And uh, three days later, President Washington urged Congress again. And after that urgent request to officially create this essential part of our government, Congress decided to drag their feet for 50 days. And finally, after that long, long wait, Congress did it. On Tuesday, September 29, 1789, Congress voted to establish the United States military. And, you know, the United States military has always been an essential part of our government. It's always been an essential part of uh, American history. One of the most memorable uh, battles in World War I was Bella Wood. On the evening of June 1st, 1918, the German army breached the Western Front and came within about 45 miles of Paris. The Marines were not going to let them get any further, so they positioned themselves and were ready to strike once the orders were passed down. That battle lasted for for, for four weeks, and in the end, U.S. forces suffered more than 9,000 casualties and more than 1,800 deaths. That is a very significant battle in World War 1 and in American history. When World War 1 ended, more than 116,000 Americans were dead fighting for their country and in helping defend our allies. And you know, joining that war was not easy. President Woodrow Wilson himself had a difficult time making that critical decision, but he ultimately, he ultimately did and the United States joined. 23 years later on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese made a surprise attack. They they essentially it was it was a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. 2403 US personnel were killed that day, including 68 civilians. Franklin D Roosevelt said, "When they did that, it blew up everywhere on newspapers." And reporters were reporting it through radio at the time. And it was essentially just very, very astonishing. 2,403 U.S. personnel were killed. Military sinks, military ships sank. 68 civilians dead. The next day, on December 8th, President Franklin D. Roosevelt made these remarks in Congress.
1: Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, The American people, in their righteous might, will win through to absolute victory.
0: Shortly after those remarks by President Franklin D. Roosevelt there, Congress voted to declare war on Japan, and it was official. In that war, uh, George H.W. Bush was a Navy pilot, and he got shot down by the Japanese, but he did survive, and he would later go on to become the head of the Republican Party. He would also go on to become our nation's 41st president of the United States. At the end of World War II, we suffered a catastrophic death toll. 407, 316,000 Americans died defending our nation And their courage and their unforgettable sacrifice was absolutely remarkable. The military has never been a partisan thing. The military has never submitted to one political party. And that is a good thing. It is there for a reason. It is put in place for a reason. The military has been protecting our country for for 231 years. Protecting our country from existential threats. My grandma, otherwise known as Mimi on this podcast, is a veteran. And so is my grandpa and my uncle. So when people say thank you for your service, it really does mean something. Because signing up to serve your country, enlisting in the United States military, is a remarkable thing. It is a remarkable sign of bravery, whatever position you may take. It's it's absolutely incredible. The president of the United States is a powerful person because they make lots of important decisions that require discipline, hard work, and comprehension. They make lots of important decisions. And, you know, in in our history as a nation, we have been through many things. We have been through wars. We have been through pandemics. We have been through a lot. And through it all, we have had presidents, whether it was good leadership or bad leadership or strong leadership or weak leadership or competent and incompetent impeached or not impeached we have always had presidents i mean presidential leadership is a vital thing it is a very serious thing it is critical and important what the president of the united states of america says what the president says matters what the president does matters and how the president does it matters as well but more importantly, the president of the United States of America is the commander in chief, and that is an influential title. But as I said, being president requires discipline, hard work, and seriousness. But are you up to the job? Are you ready to serve the country? Are you going to serve the country in a way that is, in a way that is effective? What are you going to do in office? And how are you going to implement your agenda as the new president i mean when reports came out that russian bounties russia paid taliban linked militants to murder u.s troops president trump stayed silent he did not say anything president trump i'm sorry president trump called the story a hoax he called it fake news Senator Tammy Duckworth actually wrote an, an opinion piece in USA Today saying, quote, How dare Trump still call himself our commander in chief? At the Democratic National Convention last month, she referred to him, quote, as the, quote, coward in chief, quote. She writes in this op- she writes in this opinion piece at USA Today last month. Quote, While President Donald Trump has spent the past couple of weeks golfing, campaigning, and making sure the buck stopped anywhere but with him, American service members in hotspots around the world likely were wondering whether there mi- whether they whether there might be a bounty hanging over their heads, and whether the president of the United States would even care enough to respond if that were the case. In a report confirmed by other major news organizations, the New York Times wrote on June 26 that Russia paid Taliban-linked militants to murder U.S. troops, a bounty scheme that U.S. intelligence suggests has led to the deaths of several Americans. Yet while Trump reportedly was told of the plot in writing in February, his administration still hasn't taken any apparent steps to push back against Russia's blatant and provocative act of aggression. And while the administration's excuses, obfuscations, and explanations keep changing, there is now reporting that indicates earlier and earlier briefings going back to last year informing the president and the White House of these threats. That leaves us with just a couple of options. Then she goes out to lay here. Incompetence or putting Russia first. Here's the next headline. Quote, disgraceful subservience to Putin. End quote. Those are the headlines under that. And then she goes out to lay in very, very, very stark terms, essentially what it could mean for our country and what this means. That the commander in chief would essentially stay silent on something like this. That would denounce this and say, oh, no, it's a it's a hoax. It's fake news. I talked to Putin. He said, yeah, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. The commander in chief. Okay, the commander in chief is a powerful title. The president of the United States, the leader of our armed forces, that is a very essential thing. And you would think that the president of the United States would have respect for our military. But I was wrong. When you say comments like this, um, you will receive backlash. Uh, Jeffrey Goldberg is a reporter for The Atlantic magazine. And this Thursday, he published an article that stated that President that the president referred to um, Americans who have died in war as, quote, losers and suckers, end quote. Um, now, this article is well sourced, but the president's comments are not surprising. I mean, for context here, back in 2015, uh, when Donald Trump was running for president, he insulted John McCain. He said, quote, he was a war hero because he was captured. I like people who weren't captured. He lost and he let us down. I don't like losers, end quote. Those disgusting remarks at the time by then-candidate Donald Trump were were criticized. It was just inconceivable, flabbergasting. In 2016, um, when Donald Trump was the Republican presidential candidate, and, you know, into his presidency, he repeatedly attacked gold star families. In 2019, Newsweek published this article. The headline reads, quote, Trump tells Gold Star families, quote, we will stand by your side forever, end quote, despite repeatedly attacking families of fallen veterans, end quote. Now, this the president said last year, the president said this last year at a Veterans Day event, and it was not true. I mean the president of the United States' disdain for the US military has been going on for years and years and nothing has changed. Nevertheless that reporting by Jeffrey Goldberg at the Atlantic at the Atlantic it reveals new information. Let's just get right to it. Quote when President Donald Trump canceled a visit to Ain Military to on Military Base Cemetery near Paris in 2018, he blamed rain for the last-minute decision, saying that the helicopter wouldn't fly and the Secret Service wouldn't drive from there. Neither claim was true. Trump rejected the idea of visit, of, uh, to visit because he feared that his, hay, his hair would become disheveled in the rain and because he did not believe it is important to, Ameri- to honor American war dead, according to four people with first-hand knowledge of the discussion that day. In a conversation with senior staff members on the morning of the scheduled visit, Trump said, "Why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers," End quote. In a separate conversation on the same trip, Trump referred to those Trump referred to the more than 1,800 Marines who lost their lives at Bella Wood as quote, "suckers for getting killed." End quote." So Trump makes these repulsive remarks about the soldiers who were killed in the Battle of Bella Wood in World War 1. And then the piece goes on to essentially continue it. The piece goes on to essentially explain what the battle of uh, of Bella Wood was, being that it was a consequential battle and it was a significant battle in World War 1. Then it continues, quote, "Trump's understanding of concepts such as patriotism, service and sacrifice has interested me since he expressed con- since he expressed contempt for the war for the war record of the late senator john mccain who spent more than five years as a prisoner of the north vietnamese quote he was not a war hero trump said in 2015 or running for the republican nomination for president i like people who weren't captured in quote there was no president in america there was no precedent in american history for the expression of this sort of contempt but the performatively patriotic trump did not damage to his but the performatively patriotic Trump did no damage to his candidacy by attacking McCain in this manner, nor did he set his campaign back by the attacking of parents of Human Human Khan, an army captain who was killed in Iraq in 2004. Trump remained fixated on McCain, one of the few prominent Republicans to continue criticizing him after he won the nomination. End quote. Okay, so I will now warn you that we are getting ready to get to sort of the expletive part of the piece. Um, These are words that I'm sure you have heard before. I'm not going to quote them literally on air. uh, But if you have any kiddos listening by, this would probably be a great time to pause the podcast and uh, come back later or listen on your own time. All right. Three, two, one. Quote. When McCain died in August of 2018, Trump told his senior staff Trump told his senior staff, according to three sources with direct knowledge of this event, quote, "We're not going to support that loser's funeral." And he became furious according to witnesses when he saw flags lowered to half-staff, "What the F are we doing that for? Guy was an F and loser," End quote. The president told aides, Trump was not invited to McCain's funeral. Trump's understanding of heroism has not evolved since he became president, according to sources with direct according to sources with knowledge of the president's views. He seems to genuinely not understand why Americans treat former prisoners of war with respect, nor does he understand why pilots who are shot down in combat are honored by the military. On at least two occasions since becoming president, According to three sources with direct knowledge of his views, Trump referred to former President George H.W. Bush as a, quote, loser, end quote, for being shot down by the Japanese as a Navy pilot in World War I, excuse me, in World War II. Bush escaped capture, but eight other men shot down during the same mission were caught, tortured, and executed by Japanese soldiers. When lashing out at critics, Trump often reached for illogical and corrosive insults and members of the Bush family have publicly opposed him, but his cynicism about service and military extends even to the World War I dead buried outside Paris, people who were killed more than a quarter century before he was born. Trump finds the notion of military service difficult to understand and the idea of volunteering to serve especially incomprehensible. On Memorial Day in 2017, Trump visited Arlington National Cemetery, a short drive from the White House. He was accompanied on this by He was accompanied on this visit by John Kelly, which was then the White House Chief of Staff. Excuse me. Who was then the Secretary of Homeland Security and who would a short time later become the White House Chief of Staff? The two men were set to visit Section 60, the 14-acre of the cemetery that is the burial ground for those who for those killed in America's most recent wars. Kelly's son Robert is buried in section 60 a first lieutenant in the Marine Corps Robert Kelly was killed in 2010 in Afghanistan he was 29. Trump was meant on this visit to join John Kelly in paying respects at his son's grave and to comfort the family of other fallen service members but according to sources with knowledge of this visit Trump while standing by Robert Kelly's grave turned directly to his father and said quote I don't get it what was in it for them kelly who declined to comment for the story initially believed people close to him said that that trump was making a ham-handed reference to the selflessness of americans of america's all volunteer force but later he came to realize that trump did not understand non-transactional life choices quote uh, this is according to john kelly's friend quote he cannot fathom the idea of doing something for someone other than himself he didn't excuse me he just thinks that anyone who does anything when there's no direct personal gain to be to be had is a sucker. There's no money in serving the nation, end quote. Trump cannot imagine anyone else's pain. That's why he would say this to the father of a fallen Marine on Memorial Day in the cemetery where he's buried, end quote. The article then ends off like this, quote, Trump has been the Trump has been for the duration of his presidency, fixated on staging military parades, but only a certain but only of a certain sort. In a twenty eighteen White House planning meeting for such an event, Trump asked his staff not to include wounded veterans on grounds that spectators would feel uncomfortable in the presence of amputees. Quote, nobody wants to see. As I said, when the President of the United States of America makes remarks like this, when the Commander-in-Chief makes remarks like this, these disgusting, abhorrent, repulsive, diametrically reprehensible remarks, they will receive major backlash and criticism. Yesterday, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden um, excoriated the president. He pushed back on these comments, these abhorrent remarks by the president of the United States, that those who have, who have died serving our country are, quote, suckers and losers. Um, here's Joe Biden.
1: Quite frankly, if what is written in the Atlantic is true, it's disgusting. And it affirms what most of us believe to be true that Donald Trump is not fit to do the job of President to be the Commander-in-Chief. The president reportedly said, and I emphasize reportedly said, that those who sign up to serve, instead of doing something more lucrative, are suckers. Let me be real clear. When my son was an assistant U.S. attorney and he volunteered to go to Kosovo while the war was going on as a civilian, he wasn't a sucker. When my son volunteered and joined the United States military as the Attorney General and went to Iraq for a year, won the Bronze Star and other commendations, he wasn't a sucker. And the service men and women he served with, particularly those who did not come home, were not losers. If these statements are true, the President should humbly apologize to every gold star mother and father, and every blue star family that he's denigrated and insulted. Who the heck does he think he is? Is it true? Well, we've heard from his own mouth his characterizations of an American hero John McCain as a loser in 2015. Donald Trump said he was not a war hero. I like people who weren't captured. Well, good for him. We have many obligations to the government. We only have one truly sacred obligation. Equipped and support those who we send into harm's way, care for their families while they're gone, and care for them when they are home. That's the only truly sacred obligation the government has. Duty, honor, country. These are values that drive our service members. President Trump has demonstrated he has no sense of service, no loyalty to any cause other than himself.
0: Once again, these, uh, th- that was Democratic nominee Joe Biden um, essentially excoriating the president on his disgusting remarks there, calling American war dead, quote, suckers and losers. Uh, there's lots more to get to tonight. Please stay with us. We have lots, lots ahead. If you looked at America like a bird, and that was all you knew, would you really understand it with just that point of view? We've got a different way to look at it from right here on the ground. We don't just see United States. We see United towns. From where we sit, just down the street, near the post office, by the park, when we stop and look around, what we see sparks sparks of hope of compassion of communities who stand firm when neighbors lift each other up expecting nothing in return we're grateful for what you bring and all the sparks you've shown in the thousands of towns that we get to call home This week we received the news by NBC News that was reported, quote, FBI raids Pennsylvania nursing home where hundreds caught coronavirus, dozens died. Uh, so that is a story that broke this week. Also, and St. Louis Dispatch, quote Uh, More than 650 nursing home residents dead of COVID-19 as infection rate climbs, federal data shows. Then the article goes on to write, excuse me, the article then goes on to say, quote, COVID-19 has killed 650 residents and 13 employees of federally licensed nursing homes in Missouri, according to the latest available federal data. At least 3,561 other residents and 2,285 employees have been infected as of August 16th. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services reported Sunday. That is upon from 502 deaths and 2,163 other infections among residents in Missouri nursing homes as of July 19th. According to the agency which collects reports of COVID-19 infections about 15,000 from 15,000 federally licensed nursing homes across the country, including 522 in Missouri. That is a story that we're going to keep an eye on and we're going to provide you more reporting with on Wednesday. Um, we also received this this gut wrenching and astonishing report um in prediction as well according to multiple news organizations and according to the hill they are reporting that there is this new key model that is predicting that the United States will hit four hundred thousand deaths from the coronavirus in in by January four hundred thousand deaths. Among the places where the coronavirus is spreading the worst is in prisons. Seen uh, and published this article uh, this week, quote, prison inmates are twice as likely to die of COVID-19 than those on the outside, new report finds, End quote. These are stories that all deserve national attention. These are stories that all deserve attention so we can improve this situation. Um. earlier this week on Tuesday Brinley Heineman she is a reporter for the Tennessean she reported that there was this new outbreak at a Tennessee prison and it is a large outbreak Uh, Ms. Brinley Heineman she's going to join me next stay with us
2: Hi Hi At a time when we're asked to sacrifice we step up to do our part on the home front (laughs) on the front lines to lend a helping hand and hold each other up. We are resilient, vigilant, and we'll get through this, because we are better together, even if we're a little
0: farther apart.: We are continuing to see major coronavirus outbreaks here in the United States, but among the places where the coronavirus is essentially wreaking havoc and cause of massing outbreaks is in prisons. Over the course of this pandemic, many journalists have continued to report on this situation because it really is important that we keep some attention on this story. There have been reports of lack of social distancing, inadequate testing, and unsanitary conditions. Inmates are living in close quarters, sharing almost everything from cells to telephones. And because of those reasons, the situation in prisons has exacerbated. In Tennessee, there is a prison called the South Central Correctional Facility, and it is run by Core Civic, a private corrections management firm. Over the course of receiving information about the coronavirus outbreaks in Tennessee prisons, this appears to be the worst. Brynley Heineman is a reporter for The Tennessean. She writes in her new reporting, The Tennessee Department of Health announced that 1,144 coronavirus cases were discovered in a state prison as of Tuesday. The cases were among people incarcerated at South Central Correctional Facility in Clifton, a private prison managed by CoreCivic. The Tennessee Department of Corrections said the cases were discovered during a second round of mass testing at the facility. The prison tested 1,410 inmates for the virus on Thursday and Friday. Of those... 31 test results were pending as of Tuesday. Both inmates and staff members were showing coronavirus symptoms, the Department of Corrections stated, but it wasn't immediately clear how many staff members were sick. Across all prisons in the state, at least 308 staff members are currently sick with the virus as of Tuesday. Statewide, 1,206 inmates are sick. End quote. This new coronavirus outbreak at this prison in in Tennessee is the largest prison outbreak so far in the state. Overall, 12 people who contracted the coronavirus in this prison, um, excuse me, in these prisons have died. This is a situation that appears to be getting worse, and public reporting is what we need right now. Joining me now for the interview is Brindley Heineman, a reporter for The Tennessean. She is a reporter who broke the story about this coronavirus outbreak at this Tennessee prison. Ms. Heineman, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be on here, Jeremiah.
0: Um, First of all, was there anything that I misinterpreted from your reporting?
2: Um, I do want to clarify. So this is not the largest. It's the largest we've had since May, but the largest actually was in Trousdale Turner Correctional, and they had more than 1,300 cases at once. But so this is the second largest, though, that we've had in the state so far.
0: You write in your article about um, 31 tests that are currently pending. Have there been any updates on that situation as far as public reporting?
2: Yeah, so we actually, 31 is still what uh, the Tennessee Department of Correction is reporting today, Um, but across all prisons in Tennessee, we have 280 tests that are pending. Mm.
0: As far as what you know from reporting on this, were there adequate resources in this prison that potentially could have um, halted this coronavirus outbreak? i
2: think that's a really great question um i think it's important to understand that in prisons it's really difficult to get diseases or illnesses under control and stop the spread even when there's not a pandemic um this we see this happen routinely with things like the flu the common cold hepatitis c things like that um but with the coronavirus just like everywhere else i don't think i think what we're seeing is people didn't expect it to get this bad Mm -hmm. um what I can tell you about the Tennessee Department of Correction and their response is they introduced new safety protocols um, and they introdu- they introduced those fairly quickly um, they upped their cleaning I know that they gave inmates masks and they actually require that all people incarcerated in their facilities to wear masks mm-hmm. and they require staff and anybody who's working in the facility to wear a mask um, mm. you know I think that, this is something that prisons in general are struggling with, not just in Tennessee. Um, and I think that really falls down to something you mentioned earlier, is that prisons are a close contact facility. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the prison population are housed together. Um, so even if they aren't side by side in a cell, they might actually be in a pod where they have kind of a shared common space. So getting that distance is something that's been a challenge, I think, in prisons across the board. Um Another way that they have been trying to slow the spread of the virus is Tennessee prisons have been on lockdown and on and off. So that way they aren't having as many people moving through the prison. Um, so I understand from speaking to people who are incarcerated and their families, a lot of times they're bringing meals to them rather than they are going to the cafeteria or uh, chow hall. And they've also suspended some activities and they've suspended visits. Um, Mm. So that way there aren't people who don't need to be in the prison. They aren't coming inside.
0: Um, How often were inmates and staff members tested at this prison for the coronavirus?
2: I have that right here. So, They began testing, the Tennessee Department of Correction began testing some inmates on March 23rd. -hmm. Then they began mass testing on April 18th. So the first worker tested positive April 1st, and the first inmate tested positive April 16th. So about two days after the first inmate tested positive is when they started, they introduced mass testing. Um, And this is about the third round of mass testing that people incarcerated in tennessee prisons are about to undergo and they began that effort yesterday Um, but even when they weren't doing mass testing they i believe they were still testing as needed and using contact tracing to determine who had been in contact and they were going through pod by pod and doing that as needed
0: Mm. the members that work there um that they have to go in and out of the prison as far as like going home and coming back. Um, Is there a possibility that the coronavirus potentially could have been introduced to that facility by the prison workers uh, coming back to work at the facility?
2: You know, you say, is that a possibility? I think, yes, it is a possibility. Um, I don't have the information about their contact tracing and who they determine introduced it, introduced it first to the prison system.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: But as I said earlier, the first worker did test positive on April 1st. And then we see the first inmate test positive April 16th. So about, you know, 14, 15 days later, which is in line with what we've been told by public health agencies about the Mm -hmm. incubation period.
0: Is, Is there a logical solution to, to, to sort of fix this problem?
2: Yeah, I think that going back to what I said earlier, you know, I think the prison, the prison system needs to continue doing what they've been doing, trying to mitigate the spread, slow the spread of the virus. Um, You know, the logical solution really goes down to what we're being told to do outside as well, which obviously is harder inside prisons. And that's to, you know, try to distance yourself as much as you can from people, um, Social distancing distancing is very important. Um, Mask wearing, which is mandated, that's important. Mm -hmm. And staying as clean, washing your hands, that kind of stuff. And that's, you know, that's being done from what I'm hearing from people who are incarcerated. They say that they are able to, they're able to wash their hands. They are given cleaning supplies, things like that. Um, So, yeah, I think that it's just more of what... Is being done already needs to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's important, though, to say that this is the first. This is the largest outbreak we've had since May. So we we did in Tennessee see a slowdown of cases in the prison system. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a big, big explosion in the spring. Um, we saw that in trousdale Turner, and Bledsoe County. Um, and after those two prisons reached actually some of the largest coronavirus clusters in the country. We did see a slowdown, and then this one is the first one since then that's kind of kicked it back up. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually have had—you we were speaking about South Central—that's based in Clifton, Tennessee, um, mm-hmm. and they actually have had three deaths, two that have been reported over the last day related to the coronavirus.
0: Um, you stated there that there was this large coronavirus outbreak in the spring. Um, is it sort of—is it possible that the the prisoners? Excuse me, the 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 personnel working in that prison could have let their guard down knowing that it sort of stopped and sort of just um, let their guard down for a bit. And then there was this new outbreak reintroduced to the prison.
2: You know, I think that I, I don't think that anyone has let their guard down. Um, mm-hmm. I speak to TDOC officials pretty regularly and they have maintained over the last, you know, four or five months, their policies, you know, they have done, they've tried to take an aggressive approach to curbing the spread of the virus and i know that even in the the law in cases those policies were still in effect so the masks were still required they weren't allowing visitors they were doing they had kind of kept the uh the status quo from even Mm -hmm. when cases were bad um one person i spoke spoke to who was incarcerated at bledsoe county um he was recently released and he told me he felt like this was the first test for prisons to learn how to keep people medically safe. And Mm -hmm. I think that sums it up really well.
0: Yeah. As far as reporting on this, do you know of any steps being taken um, by TDOC to sort of mitigate the spread of the coronavirus and prevent any of this from continuing to happen and become another large cluster like we have just seen this week?
2: I think with that, it's good to focus on the workers. So with people who are coming in and out of the prison, I know TDOC has announced that they're able to figure out, you know, okay, you have the virus, we're going to distance you, you need to go into quarantine. So they're able, that's a a factor they can control. Um, And I know that they have taken that seriously. Um, They say that right now, across all tdoc facilities um there are 312 active cases right now among staff members and they Mm -hmm. have had one death um but they did say for people who test positive you know they're not coming into the facility so they're staying home they're not bringing it into the prisons
0: once again my guest is brinley heineman she is a reporter for the tennessean Uh, Ms. heineman thank you so much for coming on the show and reporting on this
2: thank you for having me
0: hey google more than 100 billion words are translated every day. Your Thank you very much for your help. Words about food. <laughs> words about friendship. <laughs> about sport. About belief. About fear.
1: Oh. Oh my God.
0: Words that can hurt and sometimes divide. But every day, the most translated words in the world are how are you, thank you, and I love you. 31 days ago, we saw this massive explosion take place in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, that explosion killed 191 people, and it was just absolutely devastating. Politico writes, quote, "The country has been reeling from a long-standing political and financial crisis, in addition to the resurgence of the coronavirus and the massive explosion that ripped through Beirut's port in August, killing nearly 200 people and prompting the resignation of their prime minister." End quote. Also in Beirut, we are seeing young people cleaning up and beginning to make efforts to clean up the damage from that disaster. Today in Beirut, a survivor said, quote, we lost everything, end quote. Um, Also this week, the Lebanese military found more ammonium nitrate near the scene of the explosion. But here's something that didn't get lots of national attention when it happened. On August 6th, which was two days after that horrifying explosion took place in Beirut, Lebanon, French President Emmanuel Macron went to go visit Lebanon and see the suffering himself firsthand. Uh, The New York Times reported that New York Times reported then about some external resources being rendered to Lebanon. Quote Cyprus, the neighboring island nation where many felt the blast, sent doctors. Denmark sent cash. Italy, Jordan, and China sent medics and medical equipment. The United Nations announced that it was releasing $9 million to aid Beirut's hospitals, three of which were blown out of commission by the explosion. The article then goes on. And continues, quote, before leaving Lebanon, French President Emmanuel Macron said he had presented Lebanese leaders with a list of urgent reforms that needed to be carried out to unlock billions of dollars in international funds. He said that France would organize an international donors conference and ensure transparency to make sure that aid reached people instead of being siphoned off by the country's power brokers, end quote. Um, then it essentially talks about how people in Lebanon want French president Emmanuel Macron to just merge the countries together, France and Lebanon and make them one. One president, one, excuse me, one person said, quote, we're asking for the president of France to take over Lebanon. Just throw away the government. There's no future here for us. If the current politicians stay, we'd rather get colonized than die here. End quote. So that was last month. And this week, French President Emmanuel Macron returned. Uh, He returned to Lebanon on Tuesday in an effort to save the Lebanese political system. On August 10th, multiple news organizations reported that the entire Lebanon government resigned because of the violent protests. So this is part of uh, President Emmanuel Macron's visit to Lebanon. This is part of what he's trying to save here, their political system, as it essentially has collapsed. Alex Ward uh, writes this at Vox.com, quote, Lebanon's entire government, including its prime minister, has resigned amid public outrage over the explosion in Beirut, end quote. Then it goes on to write how many people resigned and how it has caused lots of disturbance. President Macron says, quote, it's the last chance for this political, excuse me, for this system, end quote. So this is his effort to save Lebanon's political system here essentially citing a potential collapse, which would just be catastrophic, especially given what they have just gone through. I mean, the coronavirus pandemic raging on in that country, a horrifying explosion that has left hundreds of thousands of people homeless. But here's a story of hope and kindness. There is a massive group called Canada for Lebanon, and they are making donations to Beirut the 961.com writes quote in addition to medical supplies the cargo planes are flying food and other forms of aid in accordance with lists previously prepared for the lebanon-based doctors and directors with canada whom canada excuse me whom canada for lebanon's organizers have been in contact with end quote uh, but yesterday I, I mean actually today we received some very unfortunate news Yesterday, there was a rescue team in Beirut searching for a potential survivor in a building. Um, That search has been going on for days. They said that they they, they thought there was a sign of life inside. But today, that search has come to an end. Right now in Beirut, Lebanon, they are going through a lot. And it is honestly heartbreaking. Please keep them in your thoughts and prayers. We'll be right back. Hurricane Laura has wreaked havoc. On August 20th, um, it began. On August 29th, it concluded 600,000 people are without clean water right now. Uh, That number probably has moved up. Texas A&M Task Force um, is stepping up to help those affected by Hurricane Laura. We are also receiving this news right now um, out of Houston, Texas. Reportedly, KHOU11 News is reporting that Feeling for quote, feeling forgotten. This is the headline quote, Hurricane Laura evacuees upset after being told to leave Houston hotel rooms. Subheadline quote, First, the hurricane destroyed their homes. Now, evacuees say the way they've been treated in Texas is destroying their faith in the system. Article continues quote, Many Hurricane Laura evacuees in the Houston area are frustrated and fed up after being asked to leave their hotels on Friday. They are put up in they are put in, up in hotel rooms after leaving Louisiana as more Laura excuse me as Laura moved closer. Hotels were used to were used instead of shelters because of the coronavirus concerns. Now some of them have nothing to go back to. Others' homes were just completely eradicated. Others were spared. But there is no electricity or running water, and that is expected to last for months. There are still fallen trees in the road. One mother saying, quote, my children come first before anything. If it was up to me, I could stay at my house. No electricity or water. When you have children, you need to make sure their welfare is in safety. That is my main concern. Uh, Families. Reportedly, families tell us they are frustrated because they were given a phone number to make a reservation. reservation. They say they've been calling 1-800 number provided by state officials, but they've had no luck. Once again, this is reporting from KHOU 11 News. Another person from Lake Charles says, quote, I called them, waited for two hours on hold. They told me they were going to email me with a reservation. I never received it. Other people have been on hold for five hours. This is a situation that is is going on right now. It is continuing. We had a hurricane. People are stranded in another city. People are stranded in Houston, Texas, because they cannot go back to their home. They have no home to go back to. There is nothing there. Or if their home was spared, they have children to provide for. And that is a very, very serious thing. We're going to have a special another special report on this on Wednesday next week. We're going to keep an eye on this because more attention needs to stay on this story as evacuees are essentially feeling like they've been abandoned. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I really appreciate it. Stay home this Labor Day weekend um, as coronavirus cases are continuing to surge. After Memorial Day weekend and after Labor Day, excuse me, and after July 4th, we saw coronavirus cases surge because people went out. Uh, Please stay home. Please stay home. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I'll see you this Wednesday.